Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Dr. Casey Patrick here. Andy Adams is working the board, and joining us today is Dr. Dan O'Donnell. Uh, Dan is the medical director for Indianapolis EMS Fire and Police, also director of the uh, SWAT medic team there, and a staff physician at Eskenazi Hospital, part of uh, IU Health. And full disclosure, Dan and I were residency classmates together, Um, so uh, we're also friends outside of the EMS world. Um, Today, we're kind of pairing up a couple podcasts. Um, We talked to toxicologist, medical toxicologist Jerry Snow um, earlier about, you know, the opiate epidemic and exposure risk uh, to us in the pre-hospital setting. Today, we're going to take that opiate theme and extend it a bit in a different direction and talk about EMS-directed opiate interventions. And we asked Dr. O'Donnell to join us today because they have a really interesting and forward-thinking program um, in Marion County in Indianapolis. And uh, Dr. O'Donnell was kind enough to join us today to talk about that. So usually we start with questions um, in the discussion podcast format, Dan, but I'd like for you to really just open up by telling about how your service is attacking the opiate crisis there in Indianapolis. Obviously, uh, um, if you've watched the news at all, you know that Midwest Indiana has has been hit hard by the opiate crisis. And how how have you guys attacked it? And and how did that formation of your program start? And just just kind of kind of tell us about it from the from the beginnings. Sure. Well, thanks for having me here. Um, Well, as you alluded to, and, and I think now, like the most, the rest of the United States, you know, we noticed years ago that we were in the, the midst of an opiate epidemic. I always tell the story that I'd like to tell you that I was the smart guy that figured this one out, but it took a call from our chief of logistics who let me, who wanted me to look into all the Narcan that we were using because he thought we were using it wrong. Um, that led us to kind of look into the data and we saw we were hitting this, you know, logarithmic spike in, in naloxone use uh, right around that 2012, 2013, 14 area. Um, it got us thinking and, and talking to the crews, you know, they were, they were seeing a ton of it. They were getting kind of fatigued. I mean, obviously they would treat them as, as they always would, but we're getting with a little fatigue on what are we doing for these people? We're just going on them again and again and again. Um, right about the same time we rolled out our police naloxone program where we started training police officers to give it because that's how bad it was. And the same questions came out as say, that's nice. You know, we're, we're saving the lives, but again, we're, we're seeing these people, you're cleaning them in the ED, you're balancing them, and they're, they're coming right back to see us. So what are we going to do with that? And that's when we decided we, we wanted to, to see what we could do. You know, we had to try to do something to break that continuous cycle. Um, and what started was something called Project Point. And this started actually with a small grant from a, a local drug-free uh, group uh, where we wanted to come in, pair up. At the time, initially, it was a community paramedic and a social worker uh, who would be alerted when someone was going to our county hospital after an overdose, after they got naloxone, they would go in and just basically do an assessment. Hey, what's going on? How did you get here? Where, what are, what are your issues here? What led to your overdose? Um, and just kind of get a little more information from these folks. Uh, early on in that project, you know, we, we got a lot of info and, and we got a lot of, you know, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get to treatment. But that's that's kind of where it ended. Um, we still kind of we were very limited on where they could go, and that fortunately led to a uh, an expansion of this program after a larger grant to to expand Project Point, where we actually hired 
a social worker, a peer recovery coach, which are individuals who have been clean for over three years and received special training within the state of Indiana, where they are actually stationed in our emergency department, interviewing on these folks. Um, we, at the same time, assembled a team from our mental health providers here in Indianapolis as a way to try to basically discuss these cases on a case-by-case -case basis and try to get through any barriers that we may have with the ultimate goal to, to fast track them into some kind of treatment. Taking these people, I think we would all agree, are at the highest risk in the in the disease that is addiction and try to get them paired up and into some kind of mental health treatment. And that's where Project Point started and that's where we've gone and, and we've changed over the years. And it's been relatively effective. So you mentioned, you know, in, in, in that, in that discussion about, you know, the medic fatigue. And I think that's, you see that over and over and over and you see folks cycling back through that had to be, had to be a hurdle f for your crews. What are some of the other hurdles as far as, you know, your medics approaching the opiate crisis and approaching these patients, um, as far as, you know, trying to get them help, trying to get them in the right spot. What are some other, some other, uh, problems you guys have encountered? Uh, you know, one of the big thing is there's a couple is one is, Realizing that in the in the recovery process, there are big steps backwards, and we've learned this from. Fortunately, we've had a decent amount of education from our our mental health colleagues. Is that you can expect an overdose during recovery. You can expect continued use during recovery, and educating our paramedics to that was extremely important because you know here we are telling them, hey, we're doing something. You're not just doing this in vain. You're not doing it continuously. You know they we need to let them know that this is what recovery may look like. And, and we're, our job we're, is to help keep them alive so they can have that opportunity for recovery. Um, that, that was a big issue. Um, another, another big issue that, that the paramedics were, were running into with, with regards to this is, you know, just access to recovery. Many of these people don't have anywhere to go and they're trying to do it maybe homegrown, buying substances off the street. Uh, and, and they're now dealing with, with all that, um, there, you know, what, what did you take? What am I dealing with now? Is it some long acting substance now, like Suboxone that you somehow got a hold up or methadone or, or something strange like that. So they're, they're dealing with that. Uh, we run into a decent amount and I'll say it publicly is some of our quote unquote recovery houses are one of the highest drug dealing areas in our city and, and our paramedics knew that, you know, and so we would send them there and they would call me and say, what are we doing? They are literally selling heroin in that place. You know, maybe you shouldn't do that. So they were my eyes and ears as we kind of worked to improve that program. Oh man, uh, it's gotta be unbelievably discouraging to see that. And that's probably not, not unsuspected. I know that that happens pretty frequently at, at the methadone clinics as well, you know, that's uh, tends to be where the where the sellers congregate. So that has to be mm -hmm. just unbelievably disheartening. It, um, it is, you know, and it's almost like the movies, but it was happening. It was staff members dealing, and it's tough. Oh gosh, and I think I think your point about about recovery not being all or none is one that you know anybody else who's listening out there that's not not a paramedic. I mean, anybody in in the healthcare care field, I think we all get a little bit jaded. In that, when we look at you know addiction, whether it's whether it's opiate, alcohol, whatever it may be, it's not an it's not an all or none you know proposition, right? There's right. it's a it's it's dynamic, it's in flux, and it you know there are going to be setbacks, and I think that's a definitely a good reminder for all of us to remember because I think that we we transpose that onto our patients and and our expectations for them probably are unrealistic a lot of times. 
And I think in the end, your your point's perfect. It's our job to to reverse reverse their overdose and allow them to continue, you know, continue trying to walk that that diff- difficult difficult road. You know, what talking about hurdles, let's let's move on to some more positive, uh, you know, positive aspects of your program. What are two or three specific factors that have been been kind of keys to your success? Do you think? Sure. I think number one is the collaboration. You know, fortunately. We were able to get a lot of people together at the table to kind of help deal with this problem. We didn't just do this in a in a bubble. You know, it wasn't just EMS. We're going to fix this and just tell everybody how to do it. Now, we had to do a little bit of that. There was, like many things in EMS, and tail wagging the dog, so to speak. But, you know, we were able to bring to the table, like I alluded to, our mental health folks. You know, let's, how can we get these people in? Do you realize the the scope of the problem? Um, at the same time, we got police involved. You know, we can't, there was an issue with, you know, are these people, are we bringing them to the hospital? We're promising recovery. We're promising them help just to, to arrest them once they, you know, leave or, or things like that. So, you know, the police department, bring them to the table and helping them, help, uh, allowing them to participate in the solution, I think helps. So there was really a multidisciplinary collaborative approach to this. And that's really what has led to a fair amount of our success. And then getting to the, honestly, our probably one of our biggest factors for success was this peer recovery coach program. I don't know, you know, around the country, what else they may have that mirrors this. But again, going back to it, these are people who've been in addiction, real addiction, whether it be opiates, drugs, or alcohol, have been sober, and then have been trained to do this. And they're kind of like sponsors on steroids. And it wasn't until we had our peer recovery coaches in place that we really started seeing better engagement with the patients. Because you, know, you think a social worker, I'm married to a social worker, we think they just kind of fix everything. And oftentimes they too. Uh, but it took them really having somebody that knew their story, knew what they were going through to, to have that initial contact once you know they've kind of woken up from their Narcan haze or opiate haze to really get buy-in. And once we got peer recovery coaches in play, that's when we started seeing people really engage with our program. You know, they weren't just, yeah, 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 thanks for the packet, see you later. So that that really has been huge for us. How did you, how did you guys, or how do you re- recruit those folks? Do you have a training program specific to your grant? Where, where do you, I mean, I guess not to get too deep in the weeds, but where do you guys, how do you guys find them, train them, certify them? It seems like that'd be a pretty uh, decent sized task. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Finding them was, finding them was easy. Indiana had created this program and I'd, I'd wonder if something somewhere like Texas or wherever someone's listening may have some, a program similar to this. And they, Indiana was training these folks through using federal dollars, and they really didn't have anywhere for them to go. There weren't many people using them. We could find them. To be honest with you, the hardest part was hiring them. Uh, many of these people have felonies in their background, and that was a hard stop in hiring them into our system. Um, so we had to have meetings with uh, human resources and you know have conversations about these are people that we need them because of their experience and what they've been through. Uh, so that was kind of difficult training them. Uh, once, you know, they, they just spent some time in the emergency department. They spent some time in the streets kind of seeing what, what we were dealing with, but you know, they knew again, these are people who lived it. So the, the training part wasn't too terribly difficult. We kind of just let them take the train they received and run with it. And it's actually been working out very well. And I think your first point too, regarding the multidisciplinary approach and the, you know, the multifaceted approach that's necessary to, to take on this problem is it seems obvious, but I think that sometimes we underestimate the fact that if we're going to make any headway in, in treating these folks and treating this problem, it's going to have to involve, you know, EMS, the hospital systems, law enforcement, mental health community. And, you know, the, the part of the part that you've mentioned, I think that our listeners out there, you know, are 
probably jealous of and and everyone's in the front of their mind right now is the fact that you've got grant money you know and that that is you know the it's going to take all those folks plus money to you know and whether that's outside private funding or whether that's government funding it's going to take all of those things together in some in some uh, fractional pieces uh, to to get anything close to success i think so it's 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 pretty amazing what you guys are doing where do you see where do you see your program evolving i think pretty pretty interesting that you evolved into the into the peer recovery approach the peer recovery approach what are some other areas where you see potential change, goals, future ideas? What What are some of those that you guys have on the table now? Sure, I think I think a short term goal, and I think an interesting thing is what are the role we started kind of using our community paramedicine program. We've kind of we've not abandoned. I mean, it rolled into this in hospital program. I think it's time to now reintroduce community paramedics and take these peer recovery coaches. It's time to to quote unquote go on the road. You know, we see them in the hospital. We do phone follow ups, but there are a lot of barriers these patients have to just getting into the healthcare system. You know, you're taking a 28 year old who just whose life has been about going and getting high, and now you tell them and they want recovery, but you say you got to go find your birth certificate, two bills, so you can get an ID. You know. I think a lot of your listeners, myself included, have, would have trouble finding his or her birth certificate. And I, I think that's where the role of community paramedicine or community paramedic programs could have some complement to a program like this. I'd like to really kind of build that up, you know, really go out and meet these people um, on the streets, you know, trying to assist them as they kind of get to recovery. I think there's a role, you know, I, I don't want to get too deep into this unless you want, is, you know, we, now Trexone's an alternative. Some of our jails now are injecting people now Trexone before they go and say, hey, you know, but there's no follow-up. So can we take these people, you know, before they present to our emergency departments, can we go out, partner with the jails, find out who's at high risk, and then we'll take the follow-up from there and see what they need are, their needs are. It may not be more now Trexone, may not be Suboxone, but hey, where are you at? What can we do to help you? You know, let's be a little more proactive than reactive. I would be interested in in a few more few more seconds on the naltrexone topic. How far along are you guys there in Marion County with that? Are you is it a, a, a dream in a in a in a brainstorm sheet, or are you guys moving towards that in any concrete way? Well, it's kind of interesting because right now, when you get released from Marion County Jail, if you've been identified as having opiate use disorder, and that definition can fluctuate, you actually they will give them naltrexone when they're released from jail. We've been trying for the last six months to pick these people up uh, so we can continue and, and see where they're at. Now that's been difficult because once they hand over, I've learned more about the jail system than I ever would. Once they get handed over and are released, they're then in the, the probationary system or, and so they're, they're being sent to work release programs and things like that. So it's a whole different company and we're trying to get in with them so we can do that follow-up. So we know it's happening in Marion County. They're getting the, the Naltrex home, at least from the jails. Uh, we're just trying to to then find them, you know, pick them up, you know, and, and get the names and who do we need to talk to to continue things. And that's been difficult. So actually, I, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds, but I think it is a good good point to or a good time to just for our listeners out there who aren't familiar with uh, naltrexone to talk a little bit about naltrexone, its its use and its action. And again, this is naltrexone, not Narcan or naloxone. Tell our listeners a little bit about how naltrexone can be used and what the what the purpose is purpose is of it, Dan? So yeah, uh, naltrexone is an interesting drug is, is that its primary goal is to decrease the cravings associated with opiate withdrawal. And it actually has been used, initially it was an alcohol withdrawal and has found some benefits in people 
an opiate withdrawal or stop opiates. It doesn't necessarily work by decreasing the, the symptoms associated with the withdrawal, but rather it's used for people who have those cravings. And where we're seeing it, where it has a decent role, is in our jail population who, when released, often, you know, part of their, their probation is they have to have clean urine drug screens. So these are not good candidates for Suboxone, methadone. Um, so they're often, they got to look to something else to, to help keep them off the opiates, and naltrexone may have a role in that. If you talk to our addiction psychiatrists, it is, it is good in a certain subset of people. They have to be very motivated to quit, whether they're being legally uh, motivated or just, you know, that's what they want to do. But it, it does have a role, but it, it, like everything else, it has to be to be followed up. It's not just one shot and you're done. Excellent, excellent. So that's definitely something we'll, we'll keep our keep our eyes and ears open for. Let's talk a little bit about backup. We just hit naltrexone. Let's back back up to uh, to naloxone or Narcan and talk a little bit about you know the front end of these folks. Some of the you know some of the recent literature that we've had. When you guys have opiate addicts that you Narcan in the field that then refuse refuse transport. How are you guys dealing with that? Have you seen any issues with that? We can talk a little bit about the literature, uh, if you don't mind, and kind of hit on that, kind of the front end a little bit. Sure. So, you know, it's interesting as we, like, I'm sure everywhere, everybody's listening and seeing, you know, there's a growing number of folks who are getting Narcan at home. You know, here in Indiana, we have a standing order for, for naloxone. So, you know, it's only a matter of time. And we've started seeing a little bit where people are going to call their loved one is overdosed or someone with them. They give them the Narcan. They call number one. By the time we get there, there's, you know, they they don't want any of this. You know, they don't say, they let me go, leave me alone. So, you know, the, the question remains for the medical director, for the paramedic side, what, what are we supposed to do? Can we safely leave these people? Um, we'll get into literature in a, l- a little bit. Well, I guess it does suggest, you know, there's some recent studies, especially out of Arizona, that looks and says, maybe safe to leave them. You know, if they come back completely to baseline, you know, it's not the person who's, still kind of snoozing, just kind of lightly pushing you away. But if they come back to, to a normal baseline, there's some research that says they're probably going to be okay. But, you know, again, I, I would still strongly encourage these people to get transported so they can get offered some kind of help. And one of the things we're trying to do here in Indianapolis, and we're in the final stages of getting this together, is in the event that that happens, we'll still have them call online medical control. You know, we get a document that, hey, they're refusing care, just like a COPD or still wheezing or a diabetic who's, you know, not feeling well. They'll call online medical control. If they still refuse, we'll have one of our district lieutenants or on-scene supervisors show up and we'll actually give them a Narcan kit along with some resources that our Project Point team has put together of, hey, you may not be ready now, but in the event that you are, these are some people you can call. So at least we're doing something. We've taken every step to, to ensure their well-being. And the other obvious concern is that, you know, while they may not, you know, they may not have increased mortality necessary, necessarily, you know, when we talk about classic heroin use and, and naloxone and basically length of action, you know, you get into some of the newer synthetics and you know when there's co-ingestion on board you got benzos or you know more extended release oral medications the, the naloxone may not last as long as the opiate or the other medications that they've ingested so theoretically they could have rebound uh, respiratory depression re- rebound altered mental status after you leave i think that's the you know the obvious textbook the- theoretical concern that folks have but again a lot of the literature out there is, is starting to pile up that says that you know they if they wake up to baseline like you said they can't have a sat of, of 89 and a respiratory rate of three you know for us to leave but if they're up talking and walking and saying yeah man i'm good uh, they're probably g- going to be good in the end but i think your point to not only are we safe you know i think that's sometimes the way we approach it are we safe leaving them 
I think with, with your guys' experience with Project Point, I mean, the other connection that needs to be made is are they safe and can we intervene better than just leaving them there on scene? And I think uh, it's a pretty excellent effort even bringing folks out and giving them the next best, you know, packet. Hey, you know, you're not ready yet, but this is a time for you guys, you know, to realize that, that this is going to cause long-term harm eventually. You know, I think it's, think it's kind of like, you know, smokers when they come in with COPD exacerbations. You know, it's the perfect time to talk to them about smoking cessation because they can't breathe at that point. Uh, I think this is a, the equivalent situation. So I think that's a pretty good spot for us to wrap this up. I'd like to thank Dan for joining us uh, again remotely. Dan's in, in Indianapolis today, and it's it's cold there, so he probably has a has a parka on and is ready to go go brave the the, win, the winter winds, even though it's mid April. That's uh, right. That's right. Thirty five and windy. Oh, it is uh seventy seventy five and sunny here in in the greater Conroe metropolitan area. Like we'll, we'll talk come August. Yeah. No, no, actually we won't. I'll I'll be melted, so I have to reform back in the fall. Anyhow, I'd like to thank all our listeners for joining us uh, for this episode. We'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.